Dear sir and or madam, this is Mr. Browntham. You're listening to Smart Talk. The Mike Novak Show starts in three, two, one. It's probably obvious to most of you that I'm a farmer. That's essentially what I do. I farm. <laughs> Believe it or not, I have not farmed that long. I've only been a farmer about two years. I, uh, I've been an urban guy my whole life. I always lived, I lived in New York, Los Angeles. I lived in San Francisco for a while. And, you know, I was coming on 50, and I said, you know what? To hell with this. I'm going to go back to Midwest where I'm from. I'm going to get myself a farm. You know? Well, I'll be honest. I don't even know how I got a farm. My credit score is six. I had to use my Speedway points on my financial statement. So I get this farm, and I don't know how many of you here have ever lived rural or in the country, but Jesus, it, it is creepy out there. If you're not, it is creepy. They'll tell you, at night, sun goes down, pitch black. Did you know that at night, possum, walking through a cornfield sounds exactly like three men with an axe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what kind of owl makes this sound? You're gonna die. It's the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. Green, gardening, and environment radio. Flavored with a dash of humor. Welcome to intelligent, irreverent talk about plants and the planet they grow on. Your questions, comments, and participation are always welcome at 877 711 5611. Good planets are hard to find. Temperate zones and tropic climes. True currents and thriving seas. Wind blowing through breathing trees. Strong ozone and safe sunshine. Well, good planets are hard to find. Good planets are in the main. This hour is brought to you by Bartlett Tree Experts. Every tree needs a champion. Go to Bartlett.com. Jet streams, perfect air. And here they are, Peggy Malecki and Mike Novak. Good planets are in the main. What a jerk. Welcome to the show. And we have some... Special people around. By the way, uh, uh, that farm clip we, we played at the beginning, um, I, I had never heard of Drew Hastings. Had you, Peggy? No. Nope. Any idea? Nope. I find I go on the uh, UN tubes. UN tubes. The UN. That's Y O U A N. I thought that was used tubes. Uh, it might be. We could call it used tubes. Yeah, used tubes. I like that. That because I was thinking U and A N D, the U and the tubes. But used tubes sounds even better. Hey, used tubes. Used. <laughs> uh, we have Ellie in the studio, not in the studio, in the control room with uh, Andrew. Um, and uh, Andrew, as you know, is very important guy because... I have an ultimate storage capacity of 800 quadrillion bits. My total linear computational speed has been rated at 60 trillion operations per second. 
and he's using all of them this morning. <laughs> he's using all of them because, uh, you know, he's always juggling mm-hmm. the, something's going on. Always something's malfunctioning. That's the way it works here, but we get through it. Uh, but in addition to Ellie and Andrew, we have two new interns today. Interns. Woo-hoo. And that's uh, the ding for Hannah Singh. The Sing Ding. And uh, this one is for uh, Kayla D'Elia. So they each get their own dings here. Uh, And uh, they're from Loyola, the Environmental Studies Program at Loyola University, right here in the great city of Chicago. And unless they get terrified and run screaming from the room sometime during... We lock the door. Yeah. Oh, good. That's what we always do. So welcome. We're glad to have them on board. Uh, Justin Fluke is sitting outside. Guess what? We're talking farming today, but it's urban farming or growing vegetables in your own backyard in the big city. We hope you stick around for that. You got a plan sometime, so do it now. That's not just a tree in your yard. It's an investment. It's a windbreak. It's a natural work of art. It's part of the family, which is why you want Bartlett tree experts to care for your trees. Now is a great time to go to Bartlett.com and see what they can do for you. Did you know that winter's a prime time to have your trees pruned? One of the reasons is that without leaves, the structure of the tree is easier to evaluate. Also, it's a great time to inspect your trees for any visibly hazardous conditions or structural issues. It's also easier now to work around a garden when the ground is frozen. Even during the growing season, Bartlett utilizes the most effective and environmentally sensitive methods to control tree pests, such as beneficial insects to manage the bad insects. And did we mention that Bartlett is the industry leader in safety? Whether it's a small residential project or a major commercial renovation, contact an arborist representative at Bartlett and get a free estimate because every tree needs a champion. Go to Bartlett.com. Do you believe plants have the power to change the world? We mean resilient landscapes, environmental justice, urban and regional food systems, pollution purging plants, and more. Come to Madison, Wisconsin this March 27th and 28th to explore cutting-edge ideas with landscape architects, designers, artists, and cultural leaders at Cultivating Connected Communities. A diverse group of professionals and passionate amateurs alike will gather at the University of Wisconsin, and you can be part of it. Go to allencentennialgarden.org and sign up today. You want to install a solar energy system for your home, but you're afraid you'll be overwhelmed by choices and jargon. You need to talk to our friends at Albright Solar. Albright Solar offers a boutique, hands-on approach to your situation. They know the ins and outs of local solutions. They take the confusion out of the process and make solar simple, giving you the confidence to enjoy your investment. Harness the power of the sun. Go to albright.solar or call 773-887-6446. Do you know that Chicagoans are getting healthier all the time? This is Peggy, and I know this is true because for eight years I've been publishing Natural Awakening, Chicago's greenest and healthiest magazine. And if you want your message to reach this growing market, you need to get your business in front of our readers. Why? Because our advertisers tell us that our targeted readers are committed to improving their health and they're ready to take action. That's more than 80,000 people in Chicago who will respond to your message. They're looking for holistic wellness practitioners, doctors, dentists, nutritionists, health coaches, yoga, even home improvement and landscape experts. Natural Awakenings is a free monthly magazine available in more than 1,100 locations throughout Cook, Lake, and McHenry counties. Call me today to expand your market and grow your business. 847 847- 
847-858-3697. That's 847-858-3697. Natural Awakenings. Feel good. Live simply. Laugh more. Chicken the corn, on the corn can't grow, mama. When chicken the corn, so the corn can't grow. When chicken the corn, so the corn can't mama. When chicken the corn, so the corn can't grow. Yeah, welcome back to the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. You probably haven't heard that guy before. I was asking the folks in the room. Anybody in the control room heard this before? No? Okay. All right. It's from uh, 2014, and it's uh, it's a guy named Brushy One String, <laughs> and basically he and, and this, this was from uh, what, one finger chords, in other words. Uh, well, not only that, there's only one string on his guitar. That's what I mean. One finger chords. Yeah. yeah. And uh, he, that's a song called Chicken in the Corn, which I think is very appropriate mm-hmm. today. Although you don't have any chickens there, do you, Justin? I used to. Um, really? I, yeah. We had three of them a while back, but uh, got, got, got rid of them. So. Okay. Uh, <laughs> okay. Um, and that's uh, Justin Fluke. We'll be with him in just a second. But Chicken in the Corn is the song uh, from, I guess it was a documentary called Into the Great Wide Open in 2014. And it kind of made this guy. It made, mm. He's been doing this a while. Brushy one string. What he did is took all the strings off the guitar except one. You know, I should have done that. I could have been famous. It would have been a lot easier (laughs) for me to play a guitar if I if I had done that. Uh, So that's that's who that was. Just uh, for you music fans out there, I'm not particularly hip, but every now and then um, I go to (laughs) to the used tubes and find something like that. And as I mentioned before, in the studio we have Justin Fluke from Fluke. Farms Chicago, uh, whatever the heck, Fluke Farms Chicago. <laughs> and I'm going to ask if you can pull that mic a little closer to you. Yeah. All right. And uh, let's explain how uh, we we met Justin uh, because uh, we've talked for the last several years, Peggy and I, about uh, Chicago Excellence in Gardening Awards, and basically it is a citywide gardening program awards program where we we go all over the city and it doesn't matter where you are and if you're listening to this and you have a garden and you think it's worthy you should enter the contest by going to chicago gardening awards chicago garden awards.org um uh, or go to after the, april 1st after april yeah but go there now you can't you can't yeah. enter right now nobody's gonna enter right now anyway because it's january all right they're just gonna Say, my garden's not ready. I don't know what my garden's going to look like. Uh, So that's Chicago Gardening Awards. It is Chicago Gardening Awards. Dot org. See, we're in the off season. Yeah. You know, when you start working on it all the time, uh, then you remember these things. ChicagoGardeningAwards.org. But you can also go to the Facebook page, which is Chicago Excellence in Gardening Awards. Um, You'll see photos. You'll see people with signs. You get these beautiful signs if you are an award winner and you put them in your yard, have you put the sign in your yard yet? I have it resting next to the garden. And, and in fact, I was looking at it this morning. I could see uh, the snow had melted to a degree where I could see some of the garden. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, we're not quite there yet, but um, I'm starting to think about it. So so Justin was one of the award winners this past year in 2019. And in over three years, we've given out more than 150 awards in the city of Chicago. 
And uh, by the way, I should mention the Mike Novak Show is one of the chief sponsors, uh, Natural Awakenings Chicago, Illinois Extension, Chicago Flower and Garden Show, Park District of Chicago, the Forest Preserve District of Cook County, all kinds Shed of pe- Aquarium. Shed Aquarium are all involved in this. And there are more. Uh, we just have this ton of people who want to make this happen because it's really important in wherever you are mm-hmm. in the country, whatever city you're listening in right here, you know how important gardens are. You know, you love your garden. You're impressed by your neighbor's garden. Um, you know it changes the neighborhood. You know it changes the world. You grow your own food. You're self-sufficient. Uh, there's so many reasons to garden. Um, and Justin w- entered the contest, and I happened to be the judge for Justin's garden. And um, he's kind of in my neighborhood. You're in Logan Square, Avondale, yep. slash Avondale. Um, so I went over there, and it's a two- uh, it's a two-lot garden, uh, but you use basically, I wanted to say about, and I wrote on the blog, if you go to MikeNovak.net, you can see the blog post. I thought it was about 500 square feet, really, of your garden. Would you say it's about that? I don't know about square footage, but it's about half of uh, the second lot, yeah, and yeah. I've got it all fenced off and um, built that out. Like the first year that I moved into my house, I sort of had like a makeshift like chicken wire and stakes thing, and then... Um, my younger brother had lived in the coach house for the first couple of years. And so we did like a home Depot run and, and really, <laughs> really kind of like built out the, uh, the proper fence mm-hmm. that's around it now. But I mean, you know, going back to the awards thing, I just wanted to say a, a friend of mine had just sent me the link randomly one day. I look at it on my phone. I said, that looks like a fun thing, right. To get involved with. So yeah. I think on the spot, I had just filled everything out, um, sent along a, a couple of photos and said, sure, I'll just try to give this a shot. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't even know about it. I, I think awareness is, is a big thing. If anything, I'm hoping that um, whatever I post and being a part of the event um, helps other people find out about it. Um, and I encourage anyone to jump in and submit. I mean, this is the first year that I had done it. And um, the more people that, that can find out about it, I've already told a a number of friends who are gardening and say, Yay, hey, just excellent. like get in on it, you know, I mean, especially for the vegetable growers, a lot of the stuff at the award ceremony was for the ornamentals and flowers. And, um, uh, you know, I'm encouraging anybody that I know that's growing anything to get involved and just kind of try to showcase what they've got going on because it's really not rocket science. Yeah. It's about just, <laughs> just doing it, you know, and, and learning from everybody else. Yeah, of course. And being inspired. And that's one thing that we talked about a little bit this week is just when I went to the awards ceremony, just being inspired by what other people are doing and getting different ideas on either things to grow or the way that they're growing things or um, just realizing that, oh, you can grow this sort of thing in our climate because that's, of course, something that you've got to be conscious of being in the Midwest. And I think people looking at your garden, and I might be jumping ahead a little, but the fact that you had two different varieties of corn, a lot of people in the city may think, I can't grow corn in my backyard. I know, and he has two, and there was one was early Harvest and one was later harvest, right? Yep. Yeah, so... Um, Can you tell me what the varieties were? Yeah, let's see. My dad always Oh, and by orders... the way, he's got... Okay, we got to get to your dad and your family, but folks, hold that... We're, you, we got to put that book up there. Uh, hold hold up your book, okay? So... Uh, for those folks watching on Facebook, and if you're listening on the radio, you don't see this, but he's got a little diary here where he puts all his chicken scratchings in, speaking, speaking <laughs> of chickens, Um and this is what they tell you to do all the time when you get into gardening is have a little – what do you call it? A uh, a garden log or something? Sure, I, I don't really – you yeah. know, I mean it's 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 basically I do like a sketch um, and sort of like visualize mm-hmm. where I want everything to be. And I, I kind of start out with like the big 
main principal items that I grow being corn and tomatoes, which take up the most space. Sure. But I sort of plot those out. Um, but then as I'm thinking about it, um, you've got to keep in mind like where the sun is and what's going to get the most sun. So the peppers have to be in the sun. You've got like your greens. Yeah, you can't put the corn on the south side because it'll shade everything exactly. else on the yeah. north side. But then I try to rotate it because I think they deplete some of the nutrition sure. within the soil each year. So I rotate the corn and just try to flip-flop it a little bit. But um, yeah, first thing is I just kind of like plot everything out. Um, I generally know what I'm growing year to year. Um, I try to swap in a few new things each year. So I'm in inspired to add new things either from um, the award ceremony or I was just down in Mexico and met a guy from um, some organic farm up up in Vancouver and they grew like mainly um, like how did like, you meet a guy with an organic farm in Vancouver in Mexico a friend of a friend and we were drinking wine and just like <laughs> chit-chatting and you know he had mentioned that they were growing mainly like Asian vegetables so mm-hmm. I thought you know maybe I'll grow some bok choy because then, you know, I, I just get inspired and like I brought three vegetable cookbooks that I just got recently too to inspire me to cook different things because, you know, half of the reason that I'm uh, – well, the bulk of the reason why I'm growing all these vegetables is so I can consume them, right? And um, you want to find different things to do uh, and make with the food that you're growing. So mm-hmm. like I recently got into eggplant a few years ago and now I'm making like Korean eggplant dishes and stuff like that. So it's always fun to say, okay, like what can I do with – like tomatoes, you can do a million things with with tomatoes, right? So sure. I'm trying to think of different vegetables. And it's what that everybody can... wants to grow. Yeah, uh, tomatoes are top of the list. Uh, they're not always the easiest to grow. They're not that hard, but the easy things to grow are basically zucchinis and squashes. Those are pretty... peppers are really easy to grow. You know, I mean stuff like that. Yeah, I mean for anybody who's starting out, I would just say. Do a tomato plant, do some pepper plants. That stuff's easy. I mean, you almost can't kill it, you know, as long as it's watered. Um, and well, then and that with tomatoes and pretty much any plant, but mainly tomatoes, you want good tomatoes, consistent watering is the key. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, they And because you don't want blossom end rot and that sort of thing happening to your tomatoes. I mean, there are there are insects and diseases as well that you there have to watch. There are <laughs> But those are in well, your yard. What what are the critters rabbits. that you have? In the city, I was just going to say, um, I had a rat problem for a while. Um, but that's why I had gotten a uh, a cat from the Treehouse Org. Mm-hmm. It's this um, cat rescue program within the city uh, where you can, um, you know, rescue stray cats and then basically – sort of raise them for 30 days on your property. Is that Kiko? Yeah, Kiko. So she's still a feral, like, wild cat, but she essentially lives under my deck. I've got a little three-walled shelter for her. Um, It's heated during the winter. Um, It took three or four years for her to let me pet her, but now we're tight homies. Uh, <laughs> but uh, ever since I got her, I mean, I, I was killing rats left and right, and they would come oh and, my goodness. and, like, nibble on my tomatoes. And, you know, you've got this beautiful softball like ripe, gorgeous tomato. Yeah. It's got one little nibble out of it. You're not going to eat that, right? I so. lost, I can't tell you how many tomatoes I lost last year. I was growing them in the yard next door because the yard next door has all the sun. And my, his, his dead neighbor's yard. My dead neighbor's okay. yard, right. Uh, she's still dead. And um, it, it, I... I I, I don't even know what I was going to say. You just threw me off there, but that's that, okay. That you lost a lot of tomatoes well, yeah, and that I, had, and, had little nibbles out of them. Yeah, but I, I don't know if they were rats or squirrels or what, yeah. but it was very, very frustrating. Well, and you lost uh, what cantaloupe. Yeah, and they go after cantaloupe too. too. Yeah. She's been 100% effective since I've gotten her. Um, they don't come around. What and... I want to ask you is, is how do you... 
How do you get a feral cat to come home with you? Well, here's the deal. So they set you up with basically a double wide dog cage. Um, it's uh, <laughs> the old double wide. Yeah. Well, and it's like a not for profit organization where they, you know, take the cats yes. off the streets, mm-hmm. a spare new to them, um, and then. It's it's a 30-day process where they give you, like, a double-wide cage. Um, they want to start you out with at least two or three. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you keep them in there with a litter box and food, and you bring them food and water each day to sort of, like, gain that trust, right? So it's okay. this slow process of them understanding that you're there. So you're bringing them home in the cage, and, and you're giving them food and water for a long time. How long was it? Before you could open I, the cage and not worry about the cat running away. Well, it's like the 28th day or 29th day or something is when you first, you just open up the cage. Then in for the following days, um, if they don't take off for good, then you sort of like remove the whole cage. I had two. They recommended two or three or four. I wanted just two to begin with. One of them bolted and took off, and he's been gone since then, right? Okay. Kiko disappeared for maybe like a week or so, but then she started coming back around and then realizing that there's a consistent food source um, mm-hmm. to come back. And then, you know, and then she just started being there every single day, and she was around each morning when I would bring her food. And so we got into this routine. But then even then after that, it was still about three years until she let me actually touch her and pet her. Wow. Um, but now she's there all the time, and um, – yeah, it's and great. There are I mean, no rats in your there's, yard. There's no rats, and like she's got the whole like domain is all hers. So you know, in the summertime, she's sitting up on the railing, and I, I see her like sitting in the brush, like taking the sun in and all that. So it's nice. And yeah. uh, we have about a minute and a half here, and then we're going to break. Uh, but that's a different problem from what many people have. That's that's an urban problem in the in the city. You'll also have rabbits. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Squirrels. Squirrels. I have fencing around my yard for that, too, um, just to keep some of the rabbits out because I was getting those for a while. Um, but then I just put, like, black mesh fencing all the way around my yard um, just so they don't come in and poop in the yard. Peggy has <laughs> chipmunks from hell. Um, Hot and cold running chipmunks. Uh, okay. <laughs> obviously, there are if you're in the burbs, uh, there are deer. We saw deer here at uh, a block from the station last yeah. week. There were three deer in a backyard here. It was, and and it leads to something that we're going to be talking about very soon when we have Doug Tallamy on the show, who's written a new book. He writes about it, and he says, we protect all of our deer. We don't protect our predators. We're killing all the predators, and then we have these deer population explode, uh, and then we, and and then they devour all the foliage, Mm -hmm. which creates all kinds of other issues. So, folks, you might like deer, but they got to be in smaller numbers. All right, that's Justin Fluke. We haven't gotten into a lot of this. I want to talk about how you began doing this, how you uh, treat your soil and other things in the yard. He's from Fluke Farms, Chicago. It's the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki, and we will be right back. Hello, this is Brock from Hero Power. Dirty Power is suffocating Chicago. Stop paying for coal to burn and choose the easiest way to switch to clean energy today. Hero Power offers a no-hassle option for Illinois residents to pay for renewable electricity sources like wind and solar and keep paying the same rate as they did with ComEd. The same rate. It's a no-brainer. Your money goes toward renewable energy and you avoid long-term contracts, termination fees, or the need to schedule another appointment. You can do all of this in just three minutes and drastically reduce your carbon footprint right now. 
So don't just complain about climate change. Do something about it. By switching to Hero Power, you take a huge step towards cutting carbon emissions and utilizing our natural wind and solar energy. It's a reliable and convenient way to switch to paying for premium electricity at no extra cost. Let's fight for a clean energy future together. Get clean energy in just a few clicks at MyHeroPower.com. Enroll today at MyHeroPower.com. 2019 marked 20 years of faith in place, empowering people of all faiths to be leaders in caring for the earth. Not only that, right now is the 10th annual season of the Indoor Winter Farmer's Market Program. Enjoy fresh local food from November through April at Indoor Farmer's Markets, hosted by 16 Chicagoland Houses of Worship on select Saturdays and Sundays. Faith in Place accepts Illinois Link Card SNAP benefits. For a market schedule and more info, go to faithinplace.org. Let's face it, sometimes we overdo physical activity. That's when to give Dr. Bonnie Flaster a call. Dr. Flaster is a chiropractor who treats back and neck pain, but addresses foot, knee, shoulder, and wrist pain too, all with gentle, non-force adjustments. And she'll talk to you about your problems and work with you to devise the best treatment strategy. Find health tips at rivernorthwellness.com. Call Dr. Bonnie Flaster at 312-642-7545 and get back to feeling good. There's no time for this or that. Go and get the shovel. There's no time for anything else but digging up that honeysuckle. Oh, honey, oh my honey, we are in deep trouble. There's no time for anything else, just digging up that honeysuckle. Welcome back to the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. Yeah, those of you in the city don't have to worry too much about this, but folks in the burbs and in the country know that honeysuckle is a pernicious invader it's an exotic invasive plant and then folks have to get out and dig it out i've seen areas uh downstate where you'll see all this green in the summer and you go oh that's very lush well it turns out it's all honeysuckle and it's all one one uh, species of plant or a couple of species of honeysuckle and one plant that's just and so i want to thank my friend mac austin who gets her own ding there she sent me from the used tubes um Root Docking Invasive Bush Honeysuckle, and it shows you how to dig mm-hmm. it out. And then at the end of it, there's this little song. you got to get the honeysuckle out, and it. The food is getting thin, but we're going to have to get out of this house because the honeysuckle's sneaking in. Okay, there you go. <laughs> Thank you, Mac. <laughs> so that, I just thought, yeah, I'm going to play that. Okay. Well, she, yeah, she did kind of tip us off that there was some some good music with it yeah uh, exactly so there you go uh we are with justin uh, fluke here and by the way that's spelled f-l-u-c-k but it's pronounced fluke from fluke farm chicago a winner in the chicago excellence in gardening awards in 2019 his mom is listening is dad listening do you think i would assume so yeah Yeah. i saw saw somebody else in your family pop up oh yeah (laughs) so the whole family's here probably just wave Uh, everybody wave to to justin here uh and that's a good place to start bear because he's got this beautiful view and i mean beautiful it's it's so clean that's one of the things i loved about your garden uh, your garden slash farm. The lines are so clean. Uh, is that on purpose? I mean, you've got your little sketchbook there where you, you sort of map out what you're going to do. Uh, and, and as I started to say before, that's a really good idea for beginning gardeners. I, I actually did that a few times. And then uh, that's just not me. It's not the kind of guy I, I, I go out and freelance it. And that doesn't always work out that well. So this is a really good thing to do is have the little diary or the log where you go in. And, and then you know 
next year what you did last year. Yep. Uh, and that helps. With me, it's usually photos. I go back and I look at the photo from last year because they're, they're my children, so I take photos of, of the things I grow. Uh, but your garden, well, your gardening passion started with your father and your grandfather, right? Yep. Talk about well, that and, a little bit. And really just learning from my dad. I mean, he learned from his dad. His dad learned from his dad. But um, just being a kid and helping my dad out in the summer and the spring um, to help plant the garden from just being out there with corn seeds and learning to just dig a shallow hole and then kind of, you know, sprinkle a few in and pour some dirt on top of it, right? Or picking strawberries or, har- you know, harvesting stuff when, when things came into season. But um, just kind of following him around um, and just kind of learning from him directly, right, on how to do some really basic things and then, like, seeing what my – um, grandparents had done within their garden and then, um, you, you know, continuing that, um, throughout. you must have liked your parents and your grandparents. <laughs> I mean, to follow, a kid, a lot of kids are, they're off doing something else and they're not interested at all. Why do you think you were so interested? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I don't think it was anything I was forced to do. I just, um, I, I thought it was an interesting thing to, to kind of see how it worked mm-hmm. out. And then, and, and he had a nice big garden. I mean, probably bigger than mine, um, just a different sort of shape, but, um, I, I just thought it was really interesting. And then the older you get, um, you start to understand and get that appreciation for the actual taste and like the flavor of the food and understand that, wow, like this, tomato that I just grew tastes a million times yeah. better than anything that you can buy in a store or something like that. But that, that doesn't kick in until later, um, well, you know. And when you're a little kid, there's some degree of wonder, too, of, of, yeah. of you know, pulling the carrot out of the ground or something. I, yeah. I remember my grandfather every day, it, I would go with him um, to the garden. And it was the vegetable wasn't there yesterday and it was there today. And as a little kid, that was just so cool. That and just having food at your disposal. And, and and I think, you know, going back to my grandfather and, like, before that, I mean, you know, these victory gardens were big during, like, World War II where, you know, people yeah. were growing their own food to sort of, like, mm-hmm. help the economy. And Well, at and, one point in America during World War II, 44% of the vegetables grown in America were in backyards. That's awesome. Yeah. We could – if we could do it then – we could do it now. Yep. And that's and I think that's what part of this movement is about. People do, don't know where their food yeah. comes. They don't trust what has been applied to their food, the chemicals mm-hmm. um, and the techniques used to grow. Uh, and you can do it in your backyard and grow a lot of the stuff yourself. Not necessarily all of it. You're not going to grow lemons here in Chicago, but... Certainly, as you say, tomatoes and chard well, and, and whatever else. It's a funny thing, too, because I had grown up sort of essentially eating organic food, um, but it wasn't a thing that we really called it organic food. It was just the way that my dad grew stuff. I don't think there was really anything that he really put pesticides or you know chemicals yeah. on. I mean, the trial and error with certain things like broccoli and cauliflower where you get some bugs and like, things like that. But, um, yeah, you know, this organic food trend or whatever current trends there are, it's like, okay, we've sort of been eating that way. Anyway, we just never really put like a name on it. So that's kind of interesting. That's the best way. Just what you did. Yeah. Yeah, Right. So there's no stigma attached to it. And you don't have to explain yourself. You you say, no, this is the way we grow stuff. Yeah. So you you got this uh, from your your dad and your grandfather. Uh, How is it you came? How many people can get a double lot? 
in Chicago in Logan Square. I really lucked out. I mean, this was 2012, I think. Yeah, 2012. Um, and I think I mainly lucked out just because the photos were awful um, on Redfin <laughs> or like wherever they were posted, right? Is that it wasn't clear really that it was a double lot. It wasn't clear that there was a coach house behind it. So my realtor, um, who I had seen, a, I don't know, half a dozen um, places with at least um, drinking wine within Mexico. Right? <laughs> <laughs> no, th- this is a different guy. But, uh, you know, he said, well, let's go see it. And I'm always, you know, like, let's go take a look. Um, maybe it's good. Maybe it's not. And then it had just ended up being like the right spot and was able to sort of finish it up. The house was like halfway renovated, but I was able to use a first time home buyer's loan and then sort of build it out to what I wanted it to be. So. All right. And then. Did you decide right away that you were going to garden or farm oh, yeah. in the yard? No, yeah. that that was something that I definitely was. Uh, that That's was why a, you bought the a house. huge appeal, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and having that extra lot not only gives me the opportunity to garden, but then I get really wonderful sunlight that comes in um, to the house from not having a building directly next to me. But um, I've been gardening really on my own since I had lived in Brooklyn. I was in New York for about six years and um, had a very small. Um, uh, little plot within like a, a community garden, probably about the size of this table. So that's when I really kind of started doing my own thing, right? And but but when you're working with this much space, um, you know, and a lot of people do in the city. If you might, you might live in an apartment, and there's not much you can do, and you go out. Um, my friend Mac, who who sent me the honeysuckle song, has a, a plot with um, Peterson Garden Project, who you mm-hmm. might be familiar with, and. Uh, this is how you, you grow stuff. Even if you've just got an an, apartment with really no yard, I mean, I've seen people growing, um, tomatoes and peppers on fire escapes Mm -hmm. in, you know, like, you know, patio type uh, tomatoes. So you can start out at any sort of level or scale. Um, and now I was just able to finally get like the really big spot that I wanted. Um, and then was able to just have what I have now and kind of blow it out and do like a larger scale operation. All right. Now, one of the things that impressed me when we came to see the garden. All right, so it's in this, there's the house, that's one lot, and then there's a lot next door, and you've taken about half of that, and you've you've created a garden out of it. There's all lawn, the rest of it, and those of you who are not lawn fans are going to go, ooh, lawn. Well, you don't put any chemicals on that lawn, right? Um, I do like a weed and feed. Oh, in, no, yeah, don't say that. You know, oh. Sorry. Well, and I also had, I've had some issues with some um, Creeping Charlie. It's just been like, taking over the yard. So it I, will. I, I had to put some chemicals but then, on that. But then, see, that's the thing. But you use that to mulch your garden. Well, that's why I did it towards the end of the year last year to make sure that I wasn't putting any of that on the garden come springtime. Okay. So, you know, I tried to sort of kill that off at the end of the year, and so I was strategic about when I'm putting that stuff onto the garden. So. Because when we came to see your garden, now, first of all, I'm going to say you don't need it. Okay, Creeping Charlie or not, you can rake out some of the... Uh, and, I don't uh, know, man. It was really... I like, know it's... It aggr- was, if it's it there, it's, taken over, it's yeah. aggressive. It's tough yeah. when it's in a, in, a, in a lawn. Yeah. But there are, there are natural ways to get it out, and one of them is, you know, attack it at the right time of the year. Like, mm-hmm. when it's flowering, yeah. it's vulnerable because it's putting a lot of energy into the flowers. Sure. So that's a good time to start raking that sucker out. Yeah. And if you just sort of keep up with it, um, you can... And, and overseed so that the, the, uh, the lawn crowds out the mm-hmm. creeping charlie after I, I understand because it's a you've, it's a big area you've yeah. got there and i'm sure you don't want that on the other hand if you put creeping charlie if you chop it up and put it as a mulch you know as long as you don't have roots there it's not going to root in your garden and right. even if it does 
creeping Charlie in a garden is easy. You just go and you pull right. it out. Especially yeah, when it's, in, in a when lawn, it's muddy, yeah. In a lawn is where it's tough. Yeah. But what, what we were impressed with, we came out to see you in like late July. Mm-hmm. And you said at that point you had not watered the garden once that year. Right. I I don't even know how that's possible. Yeah. yeah. Well, it, I mean, it was a wet spring. And we got into like the mulching conversation, yeah. right? So um, I had finally gotten like a lawnmower that has a bag. Um, and so I bag all the grass and then you know, sort of spread that mm-hmm. out throughout the garden to make sure that then it keeps the weeds from popping up, then also locks in the moisture. Um, and it's funny because I was texting some friends just before this, and, and they were talking about how you should mention, you know, um, I'll do my, my like, yard work right, and then, you know, you'll sit on the porch and have a beer or whatever and have this satisfaction of, like, a beautiful manicured lawn. So, <laughs> you know. He's, got, he's trying to get it both ways. Okay. <laughs> That's Justin Fluke from Fluke Farms Chicago. Let's do one more segment with him. Uh, I want to talk about some of the varieties you grow and some of the difficulties you might have had with some of the vegetables in your yard. Hey, it's January. This is what you do. You talk about gardening because you can't do it. The Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. We'll be right back. Did you know that enough plastic is thrown away each year to circle the earth four times? In a Green Diva Minute, you'll learn more and be on your way to living a deeper shade of green. Plastic doesn't biodegrade, at least not in 500 to 1,000 years. Between the islands of plastic, the size of countries floating around in the oceans, and the negative effects of it on wildlife and humans, we need to find ways to reduce and reuse plastic. So say no to plastic bags. Remember to bring your reusable ones when you shop. Recycle whatever plastic you can. Too much recyclable plastic ends up in the landfills. Extend the life of plastic items by finding clever ways to upcycle and reuse them. I'm Green Diva Meg. Find more useful Green Diva podcasts, videos, and of course, lots of low-stress ways to live a deeper shade of green at thegreendivas.com. In 2019, Openland's tree keepers pruned more than 2,500 trees and mulched another 1,500 in the Chicago area. They also helped plant more than 1,000 trees, and they're looking to match that in 2020. Tree keepers are trained volunteers who advocate and care for nature's most majestic plants, trees. This spring's course is at the Peggy Notabart Nature Museum on Sunday mornings and Wednesday evenings starting March 29th. To learn more, visit openlands.org slash treekeepers. Farm Forward is helping to change the way our world eats and farms to promote conscientious food choices, reduce farmed animal suffering, and advance sustainable agriculture. We are changing policy, changing farming, and changing the story by working with farmers to build alternatives that put animals, farmers, and communities first. To learn more about Farm Forward's work to end animal suffering and advance sustainable agriculture, visit www.farmforward.com and sign up for our monthly newsletter and find out what you can do to help. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Farm Forward. I think people get the idea of compost. Not as many people get the idea of cover crops. You're totally right. Wait, play that again. You're totally right. Again. You're totally right. Again. Totally right. The Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. We get it right a lot, but we don't always get it totally right, so we like to hear that. Again. You're totally right. Again! Totally right. The Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki on your favorite smart talk radio station. Again. 
If you're looking to invest in an electrical car or truck, make sure to hire a state-licensed electrical contract. The installation of that charger will require a permit in most municipalities. So make sure to check the ICC website for a certified contractor at icc.illinois.gov. You can also call DNR Services Unlimited. They've been a licensed electrical contractor since 1992. Visit their website at RestoreTheNorthShore.com or give them a call at 847-998-1687. It'll be easy to find someone cheaper, but a lot harder to find someone better. Just a wild mountain rose needing freedom to grow. So I ran, fearing not where I go. When a flower grows wild, it can always survive. Wildflowers don't care where they grow. Welcome back to the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. And that was another request. This time, uh, Kathleen uh, was, said, we got to play We got to play trio. Yeah, talking about wildflowers. Mm-hmm. We're not actually talking about wildflowers today, but uh, throwing this into the mix. It so, fits in. Uh, with Dolly Parton and Emmy Lou Harris and Linda Ronstadt, we saw a uh, pretty cool... Um, Documentary on Linda Ronstadt on CNN recently. Um, so uh, that reminded us of that, and we're playing that. Uh, we've got Justin Fluke in the studio from Fluke Farm Chicago, and we're talking about, you know, we're just, it's we're having a cup of coffee. We're talking about what what are we going to do this year? What are we going to plan? Planning out the garden. Yeah. Put a little Baileys in there, please. Yeah. <laughs> now, it's, now it's all coming into focus or out of focus. Um, and uh, during the break, Justin was – and he's got his fan club out there who uh, basically they say Justin's hot. They're, say, they're telling us that on – and he is. I mean, no offense. Uh, he's, he's flushing now. <laughs> uh, uh, because one of the things I wrote in the award ceremony when he, he, uh, when he came in, I said, uh, Justin makes growing vegetables cool. And he does. You're just you got this this coolness about you. I don't know what, what I I've been trying to get that for my whole life. I don't know. I don't know how you get that. Uh, but you were talking in the break about you want to get a fruit tree in there, and we were recommending a book that uh, we talked about on the show uh, last year, and it's by Orn and Manjula Martin called "Fruit Trees for Every Garden." I would highly recommend that. Um, and the best thing that he does is he tells you how to prepare the ground because Oren uh, has been doing this for 40 years in California, and he tells you how to set it up so that you're jump-starting your tree. A lot of plants, you try to get them acclimated to what's in the soil already. Here he says, no, 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 no. You want to bring in the best stuff because a fruit tree is different from other trees. It's going to produce these fruits in there, so it's taking a lot of energy to produce fruits and you want it to do quickly and it normally takes a few years for them to get to the point where they can do it so you want to supercharge your soil so that the fruit tree will grow fast and produce fruit quickly um i was kind of i hadn't ever thought about that makes sense yeah yeah so i would say pick up and you obviously like book let's show these uh, some of these books that uh uh, Justin brought in. This one is called... This is Root to Leaf, a Southern Chef Cooks Through the Seasons by Stephen Satterfield. 
You almost got it on the screen. Yeah, it was, so it was close. That one looks cool, and I've I barely had a chance there to like flip through these yet. But that one is is kind of taking you through the journey um, from spring to fall, right? So you can um, do things with radishes in the spring, or do things with sweet corn and tomatoes during yeah. like the heart of the summer, or do things with um, kale or greens and stuff like that as like the year progresses. So hopefully, the the goal of these books and that one in particular is sort of. Um, finding different things to do with the, the vegetables as they, um, you know, come into season. Yeah. And uh, I've got this book as well, Six Seasons, A New Way with Vegetables. I can and, hold that one. Here. And it's uh, it's broken down by seasons. I've started bookmarking book. that yeah. one. Yeah. 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 And yeah. it's it's six different seasons of vegetables, so, that it's not just root crops in the winter. Some uh, friends of mine um, who we used to, uh, and hopefully we'll go back to do this annual fishing trip, um, we started putting together a cookbook ourselves. So um, there's about seven or eight of us, and it's all these recipes that we sort of find online or have been passed on from, like, families. But um, we're piecing together, like, sort of like a fun cookbook um, that we're going to be... Can I give you my quinoa and kale recipe? Sure, yeah. Can I say I made that for dinner last night? Did you really? Yeah, the I make that all the time. Oh, my gosh. Thank yeah. you. It's a wonderful recipe. Oh, great. we got to put it in there. And then the third book you've got there is, is very interesting. Yeah. Um, I, I had just uh, – I'm a subscriber to Nat Geo, um, and I was uh, – on my last trip, I was flipping through the magazine and I came across this article about these centurions and these blue zone areas throughout the world where people um, – there are these small pockets on different continents where uh, there are is, is an un- unusual high amount unusually high amount of people who are living a hundred years plus. Right. So, um, and it all goes down to like the diet that they've been eating since they were kids and really not being in these, um, sort of like commercial areas where they get, um, you know, sort of ruined by like processed foods and things like that. So this book then kind of gets into those specific areas, the different foods that they're eating from Japan to California uh-huh. to wherever. But um, I, I'm definitely curious about what I can get into there. And that's and... called the blue zones mm-hmm. kitchen. All right, uh, real quick, I want to talk about some of the things you like growing, some of the varieties you've discovered uh, work well in your garden. Your your dad says your soil is excellent. Yep. You don't. You do compost, right? I don't know much about the soil. Yeah, um, each year um, I, I really just – I always add, uh, boy, I don't know, five to ten bags of, like, organic compost that I get from, you know, the nursery or Home Depot or something like that. <laughs> um, but just, just, to, to, just to throw on top of it because you lose I, some soil I will, I will point you in the right direction. But it doesn't seem that I have to because you're already doing a, a good job. But, you know, I always tell people when you're buying stuff from the, from the box stores, be careful because sometimes you don't know what's in the bag. Um, I like going to uh, a garden center and saying, hey, what compost do you guys use? What do you use for your stuff? What do you like? Where do you get it? And that and that's always a good way to. Go. I try not to buy very like a whole lot from Home Depot, but um, there's a really great garden um, center down the street from me on California called Adam and Sons. Um, so I do grow some really? of my Where's stuff. Where's Adam and Sons? It's uh, just south of Division on on uh, California. It's a family owned operation. It's it's a small little um, spot within the city, and it's great. I mean, um, I do grow some of my stuff by seed, um, so I get them out of this this young seed category uh, a catalog that. My dad's been ordering from for years, mm-hmm. so I'll do um, sweet corn and some carrots and, and you know stuff like that. But with the shorter growing season here, I try to buy plants for the tomatoes. So you're eating tomatoes in July. And what not, kind of like, tomatoes August. did you grow last year? Last year I grew. Let's see here. 
I started growing them vertically a, a couple years ago, which has been a big improvement to my grandpa. Rather than let, used it, let to do them that. sprawl? Yeah, yeah, right. Well, having those circular ones, they, they get really heavy and kind of spill over and it's hard to access them. So I, 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 I sort of like constructed this big wire mesh, like horseshoe shaped thing. Sure. My grandpa had been doing it like that. And I, I actually saw them doing the same thing at Lincoln Park Zoo. But mm-hmm. um, I always do four different types of tomatoes. So last year I had uh, big boy tomatoes, uh, bush celebrity tomatoes, um, black cherry tomatoes, which I find I like the small ones, but the cherry ones are so much better than the grape ones. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I had a um, mountain fresh tomatoes, which was like a Colorado variety that I found last we, year. We need to get you some garden gem or garden treasure this year. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I okay. think you do pretty well with those. Um, do you pay attention to the heirloom varieties? Um, a little bit. I've done some, um, like a Cherokee purple, uh, you know, like those are really fun to grow. And just like anytime you can shake it up a little yep. bit with color and, they're and delicious. flavor. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, the corn, what kind of corn did you grow? You've got, you got like 20 seconds here. Yeah. Uh, you know, my dad sends me a couple um, like early sweet corn ones. And then, you know, he it's usually a couple of like the early ones and then like the core summer, but. And I, have you had success with corn? Oh, yeah. Said? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it looked uh, beautiful in your yard. So. Yeah. All right. That's Justin Fluke, Fluke Farm Chicago. Thank you so much for coming into Thanks, the guys. studio. Uh, for those of us listening locally, uh, we'll be back with a second hour. For the others, go green or go home. Captain's log, stardate 42326.1. The Enterprise is under attack by an apparently hostile life form. Mr. Wolf, status report. They appear to be perambulating vegetables. We are being stalked by stalks of asparagus. That is incorrect, Mr. Warp. Mr. Data, be more specific. Asparagus officinalis, or killer asparagus, was the subject of a very popular 21st century tome by the brilliant author Mike Novak. Mike Novak. I'm familiar with his work. Of course. Attack of the Killer Asparagus is required reading at Starfleet Academy. Tell me more, Mr. Data. He has been variously compared to Mark Twain, Dave Barry, and Gwynok of Ninglador. Captain, shields are failing. Thank you, Mr. Wolf. Mr. Data, options. Captain, it seems to be available online at aroundtheblockpress.com. What do they have to say? Hmm. It appears that Mike Novak is a slapstick every gardener, taking all our self-delusions, mishaps, and confusions, and playing them for big laughs. That's not very helpful, Mr. Data. No, it is, however, highly accurate. Welcome back to the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. We have no idea where that came from. You can fade that sucker out right there because that's not our second hour intro. Uh, not the, that's, that's from like a year that's and a half ago. really old. That just sort of showed up in the system. Okay, we told you that, uh, that Andrew was scrambling here today, and uh, he is. That's okay. Welcome. Let's tell you that the second hour of the Mike Novak Show is brought to you by Bartlett Tree Expert because... Every tree needs a champion. Go to Bartlett.com. Uh, well, we'll be having a little discussion after the show. <laughs> like, Ooh, where, did that, where did that come from? Yikes. <laughs> uh, for you interns in the control room, that's live radio. That's how that works. Um, we have a few uh, little uh, things here before we get to... Our our guest yeah, and we're speaking v- of new sponsors too. Oh, um, we're very happy to to have um, uh, Dr. Nicholas Mink back in the studio to talk about sustainable seafood. Uh, he's the best, and uh, Sitka Salmon Shares is also the best, um, and uh, he'll be here in a second. But uh, we're getting a lot of response to uh, Justin Fluke's appearance <laughs> on the show. Um, not not just the Facebook people who think he's hot. 
Uh, but I got a uh, an email from my buddy Dan Costa at Vern Goer's Greenhouse in Hinsdale. Uh, he says, hi, Mike, for limited space, and I hope you're listening, Justin. For limited space, there are pillar apple trees, very narrow and upright. We have three or four at Goer's, but I'm sure places like Yosemite Garden Center on North Clark Street will have them. A lot of places would have them, or you order them online. Uh, from oh, uh, the, or, or the young catalog. The, the, the young catalog has a lot. Of, uh, yeah. it, now is it young or I don't young? Know. That's why I said young and junk. Uh, yeah, I think it's young. They sell bare in, root trees. I, years ago, I, I bought do, some bare roots and, from them, and they do therapy as well. The catalog, yeah. you, because it's young. Yes. All right, there yes. we go. The Jungian uh, therapy. Jungian approach. Uh, so uh, you, yeah, you can get upright apple trees. You can. There are places you can fit them in. Um, Justin's worried about the shade issues and the sun issues, and you can do that. Um, we have a couple of things coming up. We got to let you know about one of which is another new sponsor on the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki, uh, and and that is the Allen Centennial Garden, and they are doing their spring symposium. If you go to our our website, MikeNovak.net, and you probably heard it. Uh, one of the commercials uh, that flew by, <laughs> although we don't know, Andrew, if it did, because we can't hear the commercials today. Uh, so I'm hoping it played. Uh, and if it didn't, uh, we'll we'll put it into somebody else's show. They're having their spring symposium uh, March 27th and 28th at the University of Wisconsin campus in Madison. Uh, and boy, have they got some great people there um, to talk about resilient landscapes. Um and uh, among them are people like Rick Dark, um, who has written uh, a book with Doug Tallamy. He co-authored Designing for Beauty and Biodiversity in the Home Garden. Um, he's also written The American Woodland Garden, Capturing the Spirit of the Deciduous Forest, uh, The Wild Garden, Expanded Edition, um, and, and uh, Gardens of the High Line. Elevating the Nature of Modern Landscapes. The High Line is in New York, of course. We have the 606 here in Chicago. So Rick Dark is one of the speakers. I'm looking uh, very eagerly at Mickey Fern, who is a professor of the practice at North Carolina State University. Um, He is with the Department of Parks, Recreation, and Tourism Management at NC State. Um, And he's looking at the historic influence of black communities on landscapes and offer contemporary context. I'm actually kind of hoping we can get him on the show because we're going to be talking to at least one of these speakers. Jennifer Jewell will be there. Uh, She's writer. got her new book coming out this spring. Um, yeah, and she hosts uh, Cultivating Place, Conversations on Natural History and the Human Impulse to Garden. Uh, Barbara Deutsch, uh, Landscape Architecture Foundation. Uh, great people. So listen for that information and go to my website, MikeNovak.net. You'll see the logo on the homepage. You can click on it. Uh, when we come back, we'll also mention the Pullman Garden Club Winter Lecture. We'll do that before mm-hmm. we talk to Dr. Nicholas Mink from Sitka Salmon Shares. It's the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki, and we'll be right back. When it comes to tree care, it's all about the science. Well, there's love and history and family, too. But you definitely want the best science for your trees. That's why you should contact Bartlett Tree Experts at Bartlett.com. With 120 offices around the world, including...
including Canada, England, and Ireland, Bartlett is the largest residential tree care firm in the world. Their work is backed by the science of the Bartlett Research Laboratories in North Carolina. They pioneered integrated pest management, or IPM, in the 1970s, introduced the first organic fertilizer, and now Bartlett is the first and only tree care company to research the benefits of biochar on urban soils and tree health. At the same time, they're focused on you and your needs, meaning that they'll do the right thing for your tree and you. Put science to work for your trees. Get a free estimate today because every tree needs a champion. Go to Bartlett.com. Illinois has become a national leader in solar energy installation, and right now you can save 60 to 70% on installation costs. You want it for your home or business, but you don't know where to start. So give our friends at Albright Solar a call. Albright Solar offers a boutique, hands-on approach to your situation. They know the ins and outs of local solutions, and we've worked with them for a decade. They're good people, and they know their stuff. Go to albright.solar or call 773-887-6446. Whether you're a garden professional or a fervent amateur, explore cutting-edge ideas with landscape architects, designers, artists, and cultural leaders. Cultivating Connected Communities on March 27th and 28th is a gathering of diverse ideas and people at Allen Centennial Garden on the University of Wisconsin campus. You'll talk about resilient landscapes, environmental justice, urban and regional food systems, and more. Go to allencentennialgarden.org and sign up today. Stay in touch with The Mike Novak Show. Find us on Facebook and YouTube at The Mike Novak Show. Use the Twitter handle at Mike Now. Send us a photo on Instagram at The Mike Novak Show or write to us, Mike at MikeNovak.net. We're also at TheGreenDivas.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, and on the Smart Talk Radio Network. Podcasts and blog posts are available every week at MikeNovak.net. Sign up to get our newsletter on the homepage and support the sponsors who support us. Look for logos and specials at MikeNovak.net. 2019 marked 20 years of Faith in Place, empowering people of all faiths to be leaders in caring for the earth. Not only that, right now is the 10th annual season of the Indoor Winter Farmers Market Program. Enjoy fresh local food from November to April at Indoor Farmers Markets, hosted by 16 Chicagoland Houses of Worship on select Saturdays and Sundays. Faith in Place accepts Illinois link card SNAP benefits. For a market schedule and more info, go to faithinplace.org. enough of that <laughs> welcome back to the mike <laughs> show you are you familiar with that bit nick mink uh from monty python uh, and we lost one of our monty python i saw that guys. Yeah. Yeah. No. Terry, Terry Jones. Jones. Uh, just sad um the albatross bit which is albatross and um terry jones is part of that he plays the guy who comes in and orders albatross from the guy carrying the albatross tray around and it, yeah, I haven't seen that one. It's uh, it was done live in a lot of okay. places. Uh, I don't think it ever made it to the uh, uh, the the TV show or the movies. Anyway, but uh, I digress. Uh, that is uh, Doctor Nicholas Mink, uh, the CEO and founder 
of Sitka Salmon Shares uh, in full disclosure. Uh, they have been a sponsor of the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. And, uh, but we love having him come into the studio because I learned so much, not just about sustainable fishing and seafood, but about climate change. And because our oceans. Our oceans. One of the things uh, the average person, I think, misses, especially if they're landlubbers like us living in the middle of the continent, is the <laughs> profound changes. Well, except that we have the lake levels going up. Mm-hmm. And Rick DeMaio, and I need to mention this, Rick DeMaio is going to be here later. And I posted something that there was an article in Chicago Magazine about the lake levels. And the guy we had, Dan Egan, on the show in 2017, who wrote a book about the Great Lakes, um, said something about why the water level is so high. And I wrote to Rick DeMaio and I said, look at this. And he said, oh, he got it completely wrong. Mm. <laughs> and I said, oh, my goodness. Okay. So he will be on the show and we'll talk about that. But even the Great Lakes are not immune to climate change. I'm watching the dune lands uh, erode as we speak in, in mm-hmm. southern uh, in the southern Lake Michigan. It's, it's amazing. Oh, yeah, you know, uh, bodies of water are changing more quickly. Uh, and I don't think that folks understand that when they look at climate change, you've got to look to the water because that's where all the heat is being stored, isn't it? That's where the heat is being stored, and that's also where the carbon is being stored. I think uh, some studies suggest that about half of the carbon that we've uh, released into the atmosphere since you know the 1880s um, is now being stored in the ocean. Um, and yeah, oceans are warming more quickly. They're warming more unpredictably. And as someone that spends half my year in Alaska, obviously we know that the further north – we are uh, in in um, in the world. The, the 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 warmer it's getting, and the more unpredictable weather is getting. And and you know, um, I think 2019 was a a real you know a, a year that people are going to look back at, and that was the the year even in the Midwest where you know people have been seeing the real effects of uh, this changing uh, our changing ecosystems, but. You know, we've been seen in Alaska for the last five or six. You know, when I moved up to Sitka uh, in in early uh, you know 2010s, it was 55 degrees and rainy every day. That was the that was the climatological pattern for the last 150 years. And you know, we've consistently been I think six degrees above normal. Wow. Uh, you know, which is for for fish or for for birds or for you know trees, or the flora, per- permafrost. The permafrost. I mean, it's all happening very very fast and right before our eyes. Uh, and and I and what folks again I say those of us in the lower uh, latitudes don't know is how fast the change is happening in the upper latitudes mm-hmm. and that is that's those are the danger signs when you see all those maps about climate change and it's all red at the North Pole you look at that and, well uh, we had snow in Chicago it doesn't affect me look at the red yeah. at the North Pole and at the South Pole. Yeah, I think most of northern Alaska has been five or six degrees above normal for the last, you know, three or four years. And, and you know, the scary thing is, you know, we're now on that hockey stick, and so there is no normal. We don't know what the what mm-hmm. normal is because, you know, these old predictive models and analyses that uh, that – you know, used to be able to help us understand what was going on with the world are increasingly, you know, not reliable uh, because the the new normal or there is no new normal. The normal is instability, change, uh, and you know, in Alaska, we're 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 on the front lines, uh, so to speak. Um, we're seeing some of our you know first communities that are being moved um, mm-hmm. because of climate change. Uh, we because have, they can't. 
stay on the the ocean. Yeah, because they're the 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 communities are a little fall, falling into the ocean. Native communities are falling in the ocean right now. They're not able to harvest the the foods that they historically had been able to harvest. Um, it's the the change is happening fast and it's happening radically. And you know, it's only a matter of time. We know that we're going to start seeing that in the lower forty eight. Well, yeah, and, we and, already are. Yeah. I mean, look at Lake yeah. Michigan. Is it connected to climate change? It's one of the questions we'll ask our meteorologist, Rick DeMaio, today. Mm-hmm. Sorry. I was going to say, it, it, one of our, our listeners also pointed out the seabirds that are, are dying. Well, yeah. and, But how that all – seabirds, depending on the food, that's depending on the this, that's depending on the that. And then when the, the water is warmer, it all changes. Yeah. Uh, Google massive seabird yeah. die-offs in the Aleutians, and we've lost – uh, hundreds of millions of seabirds in the last 10 years from the changing uh, food web in our oceans and, and largely caused by you know, new uh, uh, warming and cooling patterns in oceans. The other big thing you know, we could talk about is ocean acidification, right? Because where the carbon is being sequestered, it's being sequestered in the oceans it's, uh, and it's um, taking H, um, uh, H2O and turning it into um, – um, uh, calcium carbonate, which doesn't allow shells to form in, in zooplankton. So you have this really important part of the bottom of the food chain not being able to develop, um, and it's affecting everything in the oceans. Tell us a little bit so folks can get a sense of who you are and what you do. What Your Ph.D. is in? History and, and environmental change and natural resource management. So I became a fishmonger somewhat accidentally. Um, <laughs> because my, you spend half of your life here in the Midwest and half of it in Alaska, yeah, right? Yeah, half of my life is spent you know, living in the Midwest and teaching at Knox College in Galesburg, where I you know, teach these things every day in a really a wonderful environmental studies department. And uh, then half of my life is spent doing this uh, fishmonger thing, which is... Um, you know, we, we, we have a company that is a 30 small scale fishermen from Southeast Alaska who, um, provide seafood largely to Midwestern, uh, consumers. So, you know, the, the genesis of the company 10 years ago was really just me working in Alaska on academic projects. <laughs> and this is an academic project. Academics know that projects get away from you. <laughs> and, uh, oh, and they, gardeners and, know that too. Yeah. yeah. Gardeners know. <laughs> Usually it's a book, right? Most academics write this, you know, their grand tome of their life. And really mm-hmm. mine has actually become this, this business, which is, you know, trying to figure out more environmentally, um, now, I, you know, as I said in this essay, you know, we're, I want to move past sustainable, but environmentally thoughtful ways and socially thoughtful ways to harvest fish from the ocean. And even in the face of climate change, and especially because of climate change, we need to be all that more uh, thoughtful about how we harvest fish and where we harvest fish and when we harvest fish. But I think it's still a really important part of uh, what we eat, what we should eat. And, you know, my interests are supporting these small scale traditional fishing communities and fishermen. Um, and, you know, and that's that's kind of my my weird academic project that I, you know, do half the time and then, you know, teach in Galesburg. <laughs> well, uh, you a study in contrast. <laughs> I, I'm fascinated by the study in contrast. And you alluded to a, a um, an article you wrote for the new food economy called In Memoriam. Sustainable Seafood, 1992 to 2019. That's a really scary title. So why why did you put it that way? Well, you know, I, I wanted to provoke a conversation among people. <laughs> so, you know, we, are li- we live in an age of shock and awe. Um, but but the, the point of the article is that, you know, sustainable seafood was a, is really a moment in time, 
right? And it emerged in the 1990s as a response to social changes uh, about where people wanted their food to come from. And but also, uh, there, you point to a date uh, in it, 1992, it, and it was the – In the Cod Moratorium off of Newfoundland. And it, right. It totally, the Canadian it per- government said you can't, you can't bring in any more cod it from per- here. It profoundly changed the global food, uh, seafood, eating, and uh, harvesting um, economy, culture, and institutions. And really, we've been living in the wake – of that moratorium for about the last 25 or 30 years as it relates to how we understand seafood, how we harvest seafood, um, how we interact with fishermen, and really what I would – and then the, the, the end of sustainable seafood, I'm, I, I kind of said what happened with another cod moratorium that just took place in the Gulf of Alaska um, where uh, the uh, National Marine Fisheries Service quite unexpectedly um, shut down – um, one of the North Pacific's largest mm-hmm. fisheries, which is this cod fishery. And it was not because of overfishing like it was in uh, Newfoundland. But this was a very, very clear um, um, a shutdown because of the radical changes that were happening in the ocean uh, that didn't allow cod to be able to produce in, in their in their historic habitat. Yeah. This was just last month. And this was just, yeah, this was just a month ago. And it's not that there's not cod in the ocean, but how we manage these cod uh, is very place-based. And, you know, cod are moving north or cod are moving south or cod are moving to uh, colder waters. And new species are coming into these uh, historic cod grounds um, that management, you know, at this point really isn't set up for, right? Uh-huh. So and, – and this, and this was a – I think this is going to be a, a kind of another watershed moment in uh, in 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 seafood management and seafood eating, when you have, you know, sort of out of the blue, um, a, a change in the in the in the cod mm-hmm. populations, like yeah. like managers saw in Alaska. Well, and yet you write, and you said here in the studio just a couple of minutes ago that you can still eat fish; it's still a viable form of food, uh, yet the government of Canada has said you can't uh, fish for cod off of the Atlantic coast there. Uh, the U.S. government has just said you can't do it in, off of Alaska. So how is it that it's still a viable business at all? Well, you know, what I'm saying is there's a there's a great quote that I, I, I didn't include in the article, but I cut it, and, and it was from a NOAA scientist, and the oceans are our most productive food producers uh, far more productive than than you know than land, mm-hmm. um, and they're always going to be productive. But what we don't know is uh, what they're going to be productive with. And when you think about eating and eating in the in the in the in the Anthropocene or you know whatever we want to call this in the world of of climate change, there's no food that is more climate friendly than eating wild foods, right? Because it is a direct connection between the sun. And the f- the production of the food, there's no fossil fuels, there's no you know uh, buying or selling it is the sun's energy directly into um, you know in this case wild fish and but, but but there is some fossil fuel. A boat takes fossil fuels to run, uh, and there are other things you know the the flash freezing I imagine takes some kind of fossil fuel engagement. Well, most of I mean the flash freezing is almost all uh, we're we're totally. Uh, water powered most of Are you most really? of southeast okay. alaska okay. the boats do consume some fossil fuels but if you look at the climate impact of eating wild foods mm-hmm. it's far better than agriculture Ex- um, what, but, but, what about farmed 
fish, though, and it being flown here to be processed and back here, yeah. and the carbon footprint of all the flying. Yeah, uh, uh, carnivorous farm fish is probably, which, which is farm salmon, is probably the worst thing that you could you can eat um, from a climate perspective. And one of the things that is, you know, really irks me is you have a lot of these, you know, kind of boutique farm salmons that are being flown all across the world, and you know, and tons of packaging and with mm-hmm. a huge carbon p- footprint calling themselves sustainable. Um, and, uh, you know, m- maybe the production of that fish is, is it, you could say it's sustainable, but certainly the transportation of that fish isn't sustainable. I mean, at, at Sitka, we offset all of our carbon using a, a basically a, a, a local Juno company that uh, has a, uh, they do kelp farms. Um, mm-hmm. So we do it that way. And then we do everything in our power to, you know, use wind energy so we're we're pretty carbon yeah, you're neutral. Not, you're not but, sending your fish to China to yeah, be processed. Yeah, and, ev- and everything comes by boat or truck, which is you know forty to a hundred times less uh, um, uh, carbon than 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 flying something. So, uh, uh, getting back, we're going to break here in just a second. Getting back to the farm raised fish. Uh, so you would say the the reason they're not sustainable is not so much with the actual raising, but of the transportation of the fish, the transport. It's complex. Okay. <laughs> There's many gradations of farm fish, uh-huh. and some are better than others. All right. We, we will leave it at that. That's Dr. Nicholas Mink, <laughs> CEO and founder of Sitka Salmon Shares. You're welcome to give us a call, 877-711-5611 or Facebook or Twitter. It's the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki, and we'll be right back. I'm Dr. Anthony Lazowitz, and this is Climate Connections. You may enjoy gazing out the window and seeing familiar birds, like goldfinches, robins, or warblers, flitting between tree branches. But as the climate warms, many bird species will need to leave some of the places they've long considered home. These areas just become no longer suitable and they'll have to move to new areas. Brooke Bateman is a senior scientist at the National Audubon Society. She says for bird lovers who want to visualize what this means in their own yards, Audubon created an online tool. Users can enter a zip code and learn more about local climate threats and the risks they pose to birds. It really gives you a local snapshot of what's happening with climate change. The tool highlights which species will no longer find suitable local habitat by the end of the century. Users can toggle between different levels of future warming so they can see that without climate action... Oh, these birds that come to my feeder or these birds I see in my backyard, they're not going to be there anymore. But if carbon pollution is sharply reduced the risk to many species are, too. The tool shows how climate action can help your favorite birds return to your feeder year after year. Climate Connections is produced by the Yale Center for Environmental Communication. Learn more at yaleclimateconnections.org. This is tree keeper number 417 telling you that there are now more than 2,000 open lands tree keepers who work throughout the region to keep trees healthy, administering proper care, and promptly recognizing and reporting harmful pests. You can add your name to that list this spring by signing up for the tree keepers course at the Peggy Notabart Nature Museum on Sunday mornings and Wednesday evenings starting March 29th. To learn more, visit openlands.org slash treekeepers.
Welcome back to the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki uh, in the studio. And, and it's always great to have you come into the studio all the time. I love that. Do you, do you have to tool in from Galesburg? Did, I came did, from Madison this morning. Did you really? Yeah. What was happening in Madison? Well, thank you. I'm half, I'm half time there. We have an office there. Yeah. Uh, but Mike Gordon from Fish played there last night. So uh, that was the big reason. P- you could have played a, a fish song. With a PH. Well, if you had told me, I will play a fish song coming into the next okay. segment. How's that? that? Was a great show. Uh, was it? Good. Oh, you're, a fish, you're a fish fan. Well, you know, in my younger days. <laughs> <laughs> You know what? I, I look at you, and I wish I were at your <laughs> your age right now. Uh, that's Dr. Nicholas Mink, Ph. Well, that's repetitive. Okay, that's redundant. Nicholas Mink, Ph.D., uh, the chief executive officer and co-founder of Sitka Salmon Shares. Uh, boy, all the great conversations happen during the commercial breaks, but we got to try to recapture some of this. Uh, and we were talking about farm raised, and y- you you said you might get into that, but we were also talking about why the ocean are the best place to produce food. Let's start with that because I, I thought your explanation was, was pretty elegant. I hope you can recapture that. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> no, the oceans are the most efficient producers of food that we have. They're far more efficient than, than, than land-based food production, and that's because the ocean converts uh, the sun's energy, uh, which is the, the basis of the food chain, into, into things we can eat much more efficiently than land can. And, the, and it's from the sun to phytoplankton to zooplankton to small fish to big fish that are then harvested. And, uh, and it does so um, in a far more efficient uh, and productive way than, than terrestrial, you know, than agriculture. And so when we think about climate-friendly foods, the most climate-friendly foods is, you know, how do we take the sun's energy? I mean, it's what we're doing with wind energy. It's what we're doing with, you know, solar energy. How do we take the sun's energy and produce food in the most um, environmentally sensitive mm-hmm. way that we can? And I think the ocean is, a, is, is one of our most important tools in, in being able to um, uh, to pr- figure out humanity in the 21st century. So we have right. to treat it right. We've got to stop acidification. We've got to stop the warming. Yep. We have to get the plastics and the microplastics yep. out of the yep. ocean. Um, we haven't even addressed that. How does that uh, impact what you're doing? Well, uh, you know, the, the big one that we're really concerned of, I mean, what we talked about earlier is is the, the food universe, the moral food universe is very, very, uh, is is ambiguous and gray, and it's all about trade-offs. And you know, the big thing that we're really concerned of is ocean acidification, which is right now – now we, we're in a place where uh, crustaceans, which the most important crustaceans for us are zooplankton because they're at the bottom of the food chain. They can't, they can't produce their shells anymore. Um, and At that's, all, it, or they're in- they're increasingly showing signs of them not being able to produce their shells, and essentially we could be in a situation in the next ten or twenty years where we've wiped out this this core part of the ba- the bottom of the food web, which is uh, which are these zooplankton, and we know and there's a wide variety of species that eat these zooplankton directly. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the one that we care about is is sockeye and pink. Um, and so what's going to happen to them? Are they going to be able to transition food sources? Uh, is are there going to be massive um, changes to those populations because of that. I mean, as the, what what consumers will notice is we're, you know, there is a lot of discussion about not having commercially harvested crab, particularly in northern latitudes, in the next you know twenty or thirty years. The last document that I read from the state of Alaska is they're not expecting a commercial king crab fishery by twenty fifty. Wow, you know that's <laughs> that's huge. That's in our lifetime, um, and that's ocean acidification because mm. because crustaceans aren't going to be able to build their shells. Uh, and on top of this. Well, you mentioned the Anthropocene, 
earlier, mm-hmm. which is the age of human beings, mm-hmm. for those of you who are not yet familiar with that term, which is now everywhere. So get used to it. Yeah. Uh, and one of the things is we don't help things. We do we do things inadvertently uh, that cause damage to the oceans. And then we do things on purpose that cause damage to the oceans, like the pebble mine that's being planned in Alaska. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, if you don't know anything about the pebble mine, I mean, there's a there's a there's a struggle for the soul of Alaska right now. Um, Related to uh, the current governor, who's is, is basically a tool of, of oil and gas and and mining, and you know what a stupid thing you're doing at the you know when we should be transitioning away from this. Uh, but the Pebble Mine is is going to be one of the lo- world's largest open pit mines. Um, it's going to be in southwest uh, Alaska, and um, it's 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 you know the 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 story is it's going to be the largest uh, most uh, significant mine in the world on what is now the largest wild salmon uh, run anywhere left in the world. And um, we know, if history is any guide, uh, we know that uh, the the story of these large open uh, pit mines are that they are, you know, that they don't pollute and that we've got, you know, you know a great new technology that's going to make sure that everything's going to turn out okay when we build these mines and have these slag pits and... Um, Example after example uh, suggests that these, you know, where they're putting this mining uh, pollution is um, going to pr- profoundly affect um, these salmon runs. Maybe not in the next ten or twenty years, uh, but certainly in the next hundred years. And then they're going to leave behind. And they, yeah, the, 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 the tailings never go the, away. The tailings never go away. And then the way that they um, and and you know to produce these metals is an incredibly mm-hmm. toxic thing. Um, and we have a current governor, you know, the Obama administration and the previous governor, um, a- as well as the EPA and as well as the Army Corps of Engineers, was um, all ruled against this. Um, and it seemed like that project was at a, a, a standstill, if not it totally ended. But um, in the last you know, six months, the new Alaskan governor uh, has, has revived it. And it's, it's a really scary thing. Uh, you know, this is, again, these, these fish that live in the North Pacific, the, you know, it, it, this is one of the last great wild food sources that we have. Um, and the salmon in Bristol Bay, um, which is where this mine is going to be, is one of the last great food sources, uh, that wild food sources that we have anywhere in the world. It and is, all you need to know when you look at the photos, uh, when you, if you're going to do an operation like that, you're going to bring, be bringing in heavy machinery. You're going to be bringing in people. Yeah. You're going to be bringing in fuels and toxic things you need to use to create the machinery that is going to, I mean... Building 80 miles of roads. That's even before you start extracting the metals. And and the the, the thing that we know will happen is these, you know, they have to build giant, you know, basically cesspools of these tailings, which are highly toxic. Mm -hmm. And uh, and, uh, we know that eventually... Those uh, those dams that hold those impoundments that hold those tailing pools back they fail. Will leak. They always fail. Well, there plus, the, there's a fault up there. Correct. We correct. Have, we have the coal ash problem yeah. throughout the lower yeah. 48, including Illinois, yeah. and our fo- our friends have been fighting that in central Illinois. Great analog. Great analog. I mean, the big one that just happened was on the Fraser River about five or six years ago. One of the last remaining big. Um, uh, watershed salmon runs, um, and uh, there was a tailings um, uh, dam failure there five or six years ago, mm-hmm. and that 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 uh, that run is a tenth of what it was. 
Well, um, I, I'm into naming names, so the governor's name is uh, Mike Dunleavy, and you should know, and I put a couple of articles on my blog. You can go to MikeNovak.net, M-I-K-E-N-O-W-A-K.net. Uh, the Natural Resources Defense Council wrote a blog piece, and they went so far as to call Governor Dunleavy a puppet for the pebble mine. Yeah, he, he's a puppet no, for, for large-scale industrial mining, logging, and development interests. And what we were talking about earlier is... You know, there was a clear understanding from the 1970s all the way through, you know, <laughs> you know, a year ago that Alaska, the main, the maintaining of that land, um, it, you know, for fisheries and it, it's a natural, it's a national interest uh, yeah. uh, uh, issue. This isn't like a local economic um, uh, development, right? We, we look to Alaska as citizens of the lower 48 as a place that it is in the national interest to protect and that's you know that's that you know that's in the 1970s when basically most of alaska was set aside as wilderness um, and which a lot of people resented in alaska which a lot of people resented the common but it's understanding still there. Was well, in the tongas uh, the tongas the tongas that <laughs> yeah. people want to uh, uh, cut that down yeah. and i'm like where else are we going to find old growth trees in the world? The Tongass is the you know ten million acres, yeah. the size of you know most of our New England states. That's one of the last pristine uh, rainforests anywhere. And, we, and, we, we and don't the, learn, and, and no, it's now uh, under um, it's 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 you know we're, we're looking at the roadless rule being. Uh-huh. Uh, taken away. All right, you got like uh, 45 seconds. We need to give a plug to Sitka Salmon Shares. What do folks need to know about 2020? It's your 10th anniversary season, isn't it's it? It's our 10th season, yeah, <laughs> surprisingly. Um, give them a ding for that. Uh, you, you can go to uh, www.sitkasalmonshares.com, and uh, we, uh, we're a community-supported fishery that, that supports the livelihoods of, of 30 small boat uh, Alaskan fishermen, and and delivers their uh, harvest into the Midwest uh, once a month during the summer. Everything's flash frozen. Uh, uh, the the supply chain we have carbon offsets, and uh, it's a it's a great product, and it's a it's a great company. And that's not just me talking. <laughs> and of course, uh, I have a share, and it is the best fish I have ever tasted. And Peggy <laughs> can. Uh, confirm that as well. Again, the website is www.sitkasalmonshares.com. Nicholas Mink, thank you so much once again for coming into the studio. Meteorologist Rick DeMaio is next. Hello, this is Brock from Hero Power. Dirty Power is suffocating Chicago. Stop paying for coal to burn and choose the easiest way to switch to clean energy today. Hero Power offers a no-hassle option for Illinois residents to pay for renewable electricity sources like wind and solar and keep paying the same rate as they did with ComEd. The same rate. It's a no Brainer, your money goes toward renewable energy and you avoid long-term contracts, termination fees, or the need to schedule another appointment. You can do all of this in just three minutes and drastically reduce your carbon footprint right now. So don't just complain about climate change. Do something about it. By switching to Hero Power, you take a huge step towards cutting carbon emissions and utilizing our natural wind and solar energy. It's a reliable and convenient way to switch to paying for premium electricity at no extra cost. Let's fight for a clean energy future together. Get clean energy in just a few clicks at MyHeroPower.com. Enroll today at MyHeroPower.com. Let's face it, sometimes we overdo physical activity. That's when to give Dr. Bonnie Flaster a call. 
Dr. Flaster is a chiropractor who treats back and neck pain, but addresses foot, knee, shoulder, and wrist pain too, all with gentle, non-force adjustments. And she'll talk to you about your problems and work with you to devise the best treatment strategy. Find health tips at rivernorthwellness.com. Call Dr. Bobby Flaster at 312-642-7545 and get back to feeling good. If you're looking to invest in an electrical car or truck, make sure to hire a state-licensed electrical contract. The installation of that charger will require a permit in most municipalities. So make sure to check the ICC website for a certified contractor at icc.illinois.gov. You can also call DNR Services Unlimited. They've been a licensed electrical contractor since 1992. Visit their website at RestoreTheNorthShore.com or give them a call at 847-998-1687. It'll be easy to find someone cheaper, but a lot harder to find someone better. Welcome back to the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. Boy, we got a lot of stuff to get done in this final segment. Uh, Meteorologist Rick DeMaio is standing by. Uh, We wanted to mention that today uh, at the Pullman Garden Club, uh, they're having the winter lecture with Roy Diblick, friend of the show, Roy Diblick. uh, And it's at 3 p.m. at the Pullman National Monument Shared Visitor Info Center, and that's 11141 South Cottage Grove. I think it's called 11141. Is that how they we, – we learned this this summer. Or 11140. About, I don't know. Uh, yeah. uh, it I, went, I get, went in one ear and you, out the other. I know. We learned it on the <laughs> south side because there's a way they, they do the numbers on the south side. And if you don't get it right, then you're an alien being. Uh, 11141 South Cottage Grove, Grove in Chicago, 3 p.m. The important part – Rick, De, uh, Rick DeMille. Rick, uh, Roy Diblick. The, the name's well, the same. maybe Rick will be there, it's too. It's the same person. I don't know. Uh, Roy Diblick will be there. And, of course, he is uh, a friend of the show and has uh, I just works with Pete Udolph and uh, has written The No Maintenance Garden and on and on and on. So we love Roy. So you might want to go to the Pullman Garden Club Winter Lecture this afternoon at 3 p.m. Uh, and we still have... Nicholas Mink in the studio. Let's bring in meteorologist Rick DeMaio. Uh, Rick, in the break, we were talking about, uh, well, uh, Nick Mink uh, it goes to Alaska half the time, and, and he fishes out there. Uh, you were with, uh, what were you doing when uh, you contacted us earlier this week? Well, or... I, I was in the Gulf of Maine, which I was oh, scalloping. You were, you were scalloping. I, I was scalloping in the Gulf of Maine with a few f- partner fishermen and, and friends of the company. Mm-hmm. And there's a there's a body of water that's that's supposedly changing faster than anywhere else in the in the ocean. Yeah, we, uh, when we talked about seaweed a couple years ago. Right, we and and, and we were talking to Nick in the break, uh, Rick, about the blob on the uh, off the coast of Alaska and how that's changing yeah. the nature of the fish there. Um, yeah, when you say blob, I think the listeners need to realize that's uh, the above normal temperature anomaly you're referring to, Mike. Yes, yes. I'm sorry, right. we were. <laughs> common, oh, it's an old movie. One common, of the two. Commonly known as the blob. <laughs> Well, you know, people could be thinking of something that eats fish, but um, <laughs> yeah, I mean that that blob. I, I we still think is probably the result of the northward extent of the uh, excessive late season typhoons that kind of push that warm air northward. And the way that the water circulates in that particular area, once you get a body of warm water up there, it kind of moves, kind of like the hands on a clock. It doesn't really get pushed east or pushed south. It just kind of sits there and spins for a while, and 
sometimes the long-term, long-range, large-scale winter pattern um, sets up um, either over it or somewhat to the west of it and kind of maintains it. And then if we can make it all the way through the winter season and it doesn't get disturbed too much, you start out the spring and summer season with temperatures that are above normal. And I, I look back at what happened this past weekend, or not this past weekend, but Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, and one of the reasons why we basically stayed above freezing throughout much of the duration of the snow Friday night into Saturday was because we had a wind, well, I shouldn't say Saturday, more so Friday. Uh, we had a wind off the lake, and usually in the middle to end of January, you don't think of the lake as a warming event um, or a warming, a warming component, uh, but it was. The lake water temperature, probably about 34, maybe 35 degrees in the middle of the lake, even though there's some ice along the shoreline. And I think that had a large part of why the system never really was able to generate much snow along the lake. And think about it. This was the third Friday to Saturday system that we had, and it involved freezing rain, sleet, and wet snow. You don't normally see that in January, do you? No, no, not at all. In fact, we were just looking at the temperatures uh, forecast for the coming week, and they're like, it's straight across. It, there's no, very little yeah. change. Yeah, yeah. The stuff I the stuff I just sent you uh, was pretty much stuff that I do for uh, the people I forecast snow for. And even though they were happy that they got some snow, um, particularly to the north and west, for a four to six inches fell in a very very small area. Uh, by and large, this was another underperforming snow event. I think we're right at, if not slightly below normal for the year snow wise, only because we had a lot of snow in the month of early or of October and early November. But what's striking, Mike and Peg, is the lack of cold. Uh, nothing in the way of any zero-degree temperatures coming at us anytime soon. The coldest we've been so far is two above. But uh, I took a rather lengthy walk along uh, the Lake Michigan shoreline this morning, and it's really good to point out the fact that there's probably about 10 to 20 feet of ice along the lakefront, and that's basically the pancake ice that developed uh, a few days early in the week, that's just because we were cold overnight. And then that east wind kind of pushed that uh, kind of slushy pancake mm -hmm. ice along the shoreline. So now at least we have a bit of a buffer zone. Uh, but anywhere along the northern part of the city of Chicago, if you look at the Rogers Park area, uh, Lee Street Beach, some of the beaches in Wilmette, uh, they're destroyed. I, I don't know how they're going to clean this up or how they're going to fix it, but um, hopefully they're going to begin to think really long and hard about the short-term consequences of what could become, you know, a long-term um, discussion. You know, we talk about the Gulf of Maine and the Gulf of Alaska, but I think it's right here in our backyard mm -hmm. that a warmer climate is definitely ruining our beaches here. Yeah, I got uh, some photos from one of my listeners, Bob Casera, in uh, Rogers Park of these trucks just loading in these tons and tons of rock along Rogers Beach, which no longer exists uh, because they're doing that. Um, and, and very quickly, um, I, say, I, yeah. I pointed out that story that was in Chicago Magazine that was an interview with, with Dan Egan um, mm -hmm. a, about why we're having the lake levels rise, and you kind of rebutted that. What, what was your take on that? Well, I just don't think his, his scientific approach was very accurate. He just said the reason why the lakes are why they are was because of the polar vortex the last few years um, and producing all this ice, which meant that the lake wasn't able to evaporate water out of it. I don't know where he kind of came up with that, because 
to get ice on the lake, you first need to have extremely cold air, and usually the extremely cold air leads to tremendous amounts of evaporation, lake effect clouds, and a loss of, of lake level. Then you form the ice, and then the ice basically begins to kind of seal up the lake a little bit, but the duration of time that the amount of ice is on the lake that has any sort of impact on evaporation is, is pretty short. It's a very, very small period of time. So that really wasn't the reason why the lakes are high. It's basically fairly simple. Two to three consecutive years of a lot of rain, two to three consecutive years of lack of cold, and two to three consecutive years of lack of heat. And all those things lead to an increase in water over a long period of time. The lake could easily go down two or three years from now, but the bottom line is the trend is there. Higher lake levels, less ice, more beach erosion. That's the death of the Great Lakes right there, at least the shoreline. All right, give me a 20-second forecast here. All right, uh, temperatures basically in the mid-30s for the next seven days. A little bit of snow coming at us Thursday night, but otherwise nothing significant for the next eight to ten days and nothing below zero for the next 15 days. Wow. Okay. Thanks, Rick. We'll talk to you next week. Uh, I want to thank everybody on the show today. Justin Fluke, Dr. Nicholas Mink. Until next time, go green or go home. It's over. How'd you like it? I don't know. I slept through the whole thing. Well, you didn't miss much.